Hello, fellow Rebel Capitals. Hope you're well. So I have discovered some information that I think is going to completely blow you away. I want to start with a quote. I don't know who to attribute this quote to, but I think you all heard it in The Usual Suspects or that movie. And it's something I'm summarizing here. I'm paraphrasing. I don't know the exact quote, but I just wrote it on my legal pad here. It's the greatest trick the devil played was convincing people he didn't exist. In this video, of course, the devil is the Federal Reserve or the central banks. But the greatest trick they ever pulled isn't convincing people they didn't exist. It's convincing people that they matter. Let me show you what I'm referring to. This is going to be a very, very cool video. We're going to go back in time. We're going to bounce around a bit, go over some charts, some data. We're going to connect some dots. At the end of this video, I'm actually going to give you a bonus as to why I think the banks themselves haven't been lending into the real economy since 2008. We all know that they just lend in the financial economy and the real economy be damned. But it's not just the incentive structure as far as the risk reward. I also think that IOR or interest on reserves have a lot to do with it. But again, more on that later. So more on that later. So let's first and foremost start by going over to the Wall Street Journal. We're going to look at a couple articles actually from the Wall Street Journal. And what I want to do is start with the highlights here. So Jerry Jordan, chief economist at First Interstate Bank Corp. There's a quote from him. It's the chairman of the Fed, when it comes down to it, who pulls the levers. Wow. So the Federal Reserve, I mean, obviously they have all the power. And right here, James E. Annable, chief economist at First National Bank of Chicago. The Fed is aggressively creating liquidity in the market. And that's what you want right now. Although an adequate supply of funds in the market is in the market and the economy is important, the challenges facing the Fed over the coming weeks are immense. The Fed doesn't do enough to bolster the economy. Uh, basically, what they're saying is the Fed is between a rock and a hard place here, where if they prime the pump too much, they risk a collapse of the dollar. Their words, not mine. But, and of course, renewed fears of inflation. But if they don't do enough, then they risk a hard landing and the US economy going into recession. But you guys have probably seen me play this trick, speaking of tricks, <laughs> a couple times. And uh, for those of you who are really paying attention, you know what I'm going to do next. Let's go to the top of the article. And we see that this is from the Wall Street Journal in 1987. So October 21st, in fact, this was right after Black Monday. Right here, they said, after the M Monday's unprecedented crash. And one thing I didn't show you about this quote from Jerry Jordan, he says, I think Greenspan, that'll let the cat out of the bag, is the only candidate for restoring the confidence in the markets or of the markets. He goes on to talk about all these levers and they talk about the Fed dropping rates, maybe from, uh, let's say, from point. 7.5 down to uh, 6.75, you know, all these things that the Fed can do. But they, 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 they it's just like today where they're saying the, the Fed, they're walking this tightrope and they've got all the dials that they can just fine tune here and there. And you, you, you've got it, you can't do too much because, oh my gosh, then, you, and then we risk accelerating inflation. And isn't it interesting? The exact same arguments that you hear back then, you heard today. Exact same. 
That's why I pointed out this last sentence. And if the Fed primes the pump with too much money, it risks a collapse of the dollar. <laughs> it's in 1987 and renewed fears of inflation. And I think it's just so insightful to go back in time because we think that what's been or what's been said or the mainstream narrative right now that this is the first time we've ever heard this. But it, this is all cyclical, right? So nowadays they say the exact same thing, but let's look at the actual data because if you read an article like this, my goodness gracious, it would sound like the Fed like one day they've got bank, because let's remember what the Fed does here. Okay. They can drop rates or low, raise rates, whatever. But then what they're talking about here, really getting it right where they've, uh, where they say uh, the Fed is aggressively creating liquidity in the market. Oh my gosh. Ag aggressively. Whoa. You would think that that's just money printer go burr. And the way that the Fed prints money is it increases the size of their balance sheet, quantitative easing. Right, creating bank reserves, bank reserves, bank reserves. You get all the time. liquidity, liquidity. Oh my gosh, the Fed is pumping liquidity into the system. So you would think, based on this article, and I could have pulled up a thousand articles like this from the 80s, 90s, whatever, that the Fed from day to day would be sitting there behind all of these screens with all of these metrics and all of these models and equations, you know, look like a chalkboard with, uh, uh, with that Einstein is writing on in some sort of class, right? To try to figure out the exact amount of liquidity to pump into the system. We don't want to do too much or we're going to have hyperinflation. And if we do too little, oh my gosh, the recession's going to crash or the uh, economy's going to crash. We're going to go into a recession. So you would think based on this, the swings in the amount of reserves would be massive. Like one day there would be a, a trillion dollars. The next day there'd be a billion dollars. The next day there'd be 500 because they've, they've got all of these equations and mathematical models and all these things because they are at the center of the economy. They are the center of the monetary system. Wow. Okay. So now let's go over to the H3 data that I pulled up on the Fed's website. But let's look at all of this micromanaging, the, the maestro Alan Greenspan was doing per all of these economists and professionals and uh, experts at the Wall Street Journal here in the mainstream media. So if we look at the total deposits or reserves of depository institutions, remember this includes uh, vault cash. We talked about this just last week. So that they're not settling. The liquidity wouldn't be vault cash. Because banks, I mean, maybe they were back in the 1800s or something. But in 1980, the, the banks weren't, you know, settling by saying, hey, we'll send you this electronic deposit liability and we're going to send over the Brinks truck. It'll be there in a half hour. As long as there's no traffic. <laughs> no, they're not doing this. They're going to settle electronically on the asset side, just like they're going to settle uh, or this like they're sending over an electronic deposit liability. In other words, money, right? So when you send $1,000 from Wells Fargo or to Bank of America, let's say you're paying off a buddy or you're selling your, your, uh, a family member, a thousand bucks or something, your bank is sending the receiving bank a thousand dollar deposit liability. They're not sending them green pieces of paper or dollar. They're sending them something denominated in dollars, but it's just simply a record. It's just simply a, a, a ledger transaction. 
So they've got to send the assets as well, uh, unless that bank has assets that they can deduct. Um, but just keeping this super simple, they're not sending over a Brinks truck. That's my point. So what you have to do, if you want to look at all this liquidity that the maestro was managing every single day with his equations and all these pumps and levers and all these strings that he could pull. And again, it's just like that chalkboard with Einstein writing out all these equations. That would be <clears throat> that would be this column. That's the reserve balances with the Federal Reserve Bank. And look at what the maestro was doing. Look at all of this activity. We go from 34, this is 1986, to 37. This is 37 billion, by the way. But then look at this. Oh my gosh, we go to 36 and 33, then 35, then 37, then 36 for three months straight, and then, oh, down to 35, and then back to 36, and up to 37 and 37. You get my first point. Pardon my language, but the maestro ain't doing shit. He's not doing anything. He's just sitting back, and he's got his feet up on the desk. He's like, you got me? Liquidity? Uh, Sure, sure, sure. Let me put out a press release saying that we're going to provide as much liquidity as the market needs. But I'm not done. We're not even getting, we've just barely scratched the tip of the iceberg here. Or we barely scratched the surface. Now let's go over to the Wall Street Journal. We're going to fast forward a few years and we're going to go to 1998. So here we go, Wall Street Journal, 1998. We've gone from 1986 to 1998. Maestro, still in charge. <laughs> still pulling all those levers every single day to make sure we got, it's not too... Uh, it's like the the three bears. <laughs> it's not too hot. It's not too cold. It's just perfect. Oh my gosh. It's just perfect. Right in the middle. Right. So here we go. Title fed favors, giving banks more time to comply with reserve requirements. Because remember, this is another one of their, their dials that they can turn. I mean, we could just up the reserve requirements or we could just lower the reserve requirements. Just like now, oh, I mean, we got the SLR, we got Basel three, got all these things. My goodness, the amount of tools for micromanagement. It's unbelievable. <laughs> uh, first thing here, a majority of Federal Reserve Board governors voiced support for a proposal that would give banks more time to comply with reserve balance requirements. So this time out here, let's back up. What's the argument for having reserve requirements in the first place? It's so you've got this much broad money or you've got this many deposits, let's say this much, but then you need to have this many reserves to back up those deposits because that's a measure of safety. So if this many deposits leave the bank, right, then you've got that many reserves to match up with those deposits that are leaving. And, you know, you're not going to have all your deposits go away overnight unless you're Silicon Valley Bank, but usually <laughs> you're, you're not going to have that. So we got about 10% in there. All right. We're good to go. But the reason you have the reserve requirements is so you can transfer commercial deposit liabilities and you've got the assets, the liquid assets to transfer as well. If that's what your customers want to do. Okay. That's the idea behind reserve requirements. So why, if it's so important, if it's so crucial, then why would we give banks more time to comply with that. I mean, look, at the end of the day, the Federal Reserve, they are a bank, but they're the banking regulator. So if these reserve requirements are so important, 
for the overall safety or the overall uh, what's resilience of the banking system, why would you give them a break? You're going to find out in just a moment here. The next thing I highlighted, the plan also reflects the declining emphasis the Fed places on bank reserve quantity targets. Ah, okay, now it's starting to make sense. They're giving the banks more leeway, not because they're doing the banks a favor, but they want to make it seem as though this is the Fed doing it. Because if they didn't come out and say, hey, we're enacting this policy, and the banks were just doing it on their own and basically giving the Fed the finger, then it would seem like maybe, whoa, whoa, maybe the Fed doesn't matter. Hmm. Again, what was the quote that we started? The greatest trick the devil ever played was convincing the world he didn't exist. But in this case, it's the greatest trick the the devil ever pulled was convincing the market that he mattered. You see, when you go through, when you actually do the deep dive research and look at the 1980s, the 1990s, the 2000s, and see how this played out, and look at the actual data, you come to the obvious conclusion that the Fed doesn't matter to the banks. They don't care what the Fed is doing. The, the, the Fed, uh, I, I matter, you matter more to the banks than the Fed, than Jerome Powell. But the Fed knows that. So what they do is they're like that little kid that's always trying to get your attention. It's starving for attention, right? It's like the youngest child in a family. Otherwise, oh, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. This is what the Fed is doing to try to convince you that they matter. This is the only trick they have. And it's, and it's you got to give them credit because they pulled it off convincingly. Because now in the mainstream media, every single thing you hear, or on Twitter with all the experts, uh, other people that I'm sure you guys listen to, what are the, it's all about the Fed, 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 liquidity, bank reserves, Fed, TGA, reverse repo, blah, 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 Fed, 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 Fed. The Fed's done a great job. You got to give them credit, right? The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the market that he mattered. And and again, it, it, you got to give him a hat tip that that is a fantastic trick that they have pulled over the market. But let's keep going here. I'm not done. One of those developments has been the advent of retail sweep accounts that allow banks to temporarily shift checking account balances to which reserve requirements apply into other accounts that don't carry such requirements. So you see what's happening here is the Fed is coming out and saying, we're going to get strong with these banks. We're going to regulate them. So you don't have to worry because we are in control. We control those banksters. We control the monetary system. The buck stocks stops here. You see, so we're going to set up this 10% reserve requirement so you don't have to worry. And then what do the banks do? Same thing they always do. Oh, you got your bank reserves? Well, that's great. I've got something for you. It's called my middle finger because what we're going to do is we're just going to set up these sweep accounts that aren't applicable to the reserve requirements. And every single night, we're just going to take that money and bring it right into the sweep accounts. And we're going to tell you to jump off the nearest cliff. Pound sand. F you. So now let's back up. If the Fed was truly, truly in control and they were truly all about protecting the consumers and making sure that the banking system wasn't fragile, making sure the banking system was anti-fragile, that was it was resilient. Why would the Fed allow them to sweep the money into these accounts? And by the way, why wouldn't the Fed just change the rule to where the reserve requirements 
were applicable to not only checking accounts, but the sweep accounts. Why? Why? Why didn't the Fed do that? Because they don't control anything. See, what they're doing is they're reacting to whatever the bank is doing, and they're trying to make it seem as though it's their idea. That's what's going on here. That's the ruse. <laughs> and you could just see it over and over and over again. Hey guys, I want to remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Serezna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options, Jason Hartman, real estate, and Brent Johnson with Macroeconomics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow Rebel Capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. So H3 data from 1998, remember, just as a, a quick reminder, back in 1986, the, the, the main account that we're focused on, the, the liquidity that the Fed provides, that the maestro and Ben Bernanke and now Jerome Powell and Janet Yellen, all of them, they sit there and micromanage to perfection, make sure that we're not going into hyperinflation. We're not going into a massive deflationary bust. That's the reserve balances with the Federal Reserve Banks right here, this column, $34 billion in 1986. 80, uh, 1986. Okay. So now what do you think it was in 1998? Well, obviously, I mean, let's remember that during this time frame, M2 money supply went from right here, 1986, call it 2.5, roughly 2.5 billion all the way up to looks like, uh, we'll call it 4.5, just close enough. Right. So 1999 around 4.5. Okay. So it went up by two trillion dollars. I hope I said trillion. Did I say trillion? I meant if I didn't say trillion in 1980s, I meant trillion. It was 2.5 trillion and it went to roughly 4.5 trillion. So up by, by $2 trillion. Well, let's remember what are the banks supposedly using these reserves for? Well, they're using it to settle transactions. So if you have M2 money supply, if it's going from one bank to this bank, to that bank, to that bank, okay, this money supply is all commercial bank liabilities. Emphasis on the liability right? So it's all these liabilities going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth to banks. So the idea is that the asset that they're using to settle all these transactions back and forth is going to be bank reserves, right? Therefore, the more M2 money supply you have, well, obviously the more bank reserves you would have to have, assuming that velocity stays the same. And let's remember that velocity during this time frame increased during the 1990s substantially, okay? So if they had $34 billion in reserves, in 1986, I mean, at the very least, they would have to double that at the very least. But what happened? It went from 34 down to nine, down to nine. It didn't go up. It went down and not just down, way down. And let's remember going back to the reserve requirement that right here, we had a 10% reserve requirement. Now it is true that that didn't apply to all the banks, but let's just assume for a moment that it, that our average was a 5% reserve requirement. Okay, great. 
Well, we've got M2 money supply at, uh, let's just go to 1998 and say it was 4.5 trillion, but we had nine billion. <laughs> now it is true with the reserve requirement, they could add in the, uh, the, the, the cash that they had, the vault cash. But just looking at it from a standpoint, the reserves that they actually would use, and therefore that's what the Fed should really be paying attention to. In fact, I don't even know why the reserve requirements would include the bank, the vault cash. I mean, that's got to be a rule going back to like the early 1900s or something that they just kept in place, right? So, because again, what really matters is the electronic reserves that are held on the Fed's balance sheet that they can use for settlement. So now let's go ahead and look at uh, just my, I'll crank up a calculator real quick here. So we've got uh, basically 9 billion in reserves. So I'm going to divide that by 4,500. Oh, wow. So that doesn't give you uh, a 10%. It doesn't give you 5%. In fact, it doesn't give you 1%. It gives you 0.2%. 0.2%. So what's going on here? Now, <clears throat> we're not done. Let's take it a step further. We go to 2007, and we've got, let's call it 7.5 trillion in M2 money supply. Okay, so obviously now the, 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 the reserves would have had to have gone up. I mean, maybe there was just a long lag period, and for some reason during that decade, they just didn't need it. I, I don't know who knows the, you know, what the banks were doing behind the scenes there, but obviously by 2007, especially with M2 going from 2.5, in 86, all the way up to 7.5, you would have had to have seen a, an explosion in bank reserves, especially if all these central bankers are behind the scenes with all their little dials and every day twisting and doing this and that and this and that and this. And they're just, they're, the, the level of precision is just mind boggling, according to the Wall Street Journal and according to the Federal Reserve, because that's what they want you to believe, right? So again, you would have had, you would have, had to have seen reserves just go parabolic. Okay, well, what happened? I don't have the H3 data pulled up. But what I can tell you, because I just got it right at the top of my head, is that it went from 34 billion in 1986 down to 9 billion in 1998, down to 8, down to 8 billion in 2007. So we had bank reserves, the ones that matter, go from 34 billion down to 8 billion at a time when M2 money supply went from 2.5 trillion to 7.5 trillion. And by the way, if you look at the individual numbers, you see that they're not fluctuating wildly here. Like when the, 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 again, we go back to this original article where the guys are talking about the Fed is aggressively creating liquidity in the market. Uh, aggressively? Let's just look at the exact month. This is October 18th. Okay. So let's go to October of. 1987, when this was written, and we see that the reserves did nothing, literally nothing. In October, they were 37 billion. In November, they were 37 billion. Y you get the ruse, guys? You're sitting there listening to the mainstream media talking about the Fed is doing, <coughs> excuse me, the Fed is doing this and the Fed is doing that. Oh my gosh, it's going to rain liquidity on the entire world. They better get it right or we're going to go into hyperinflation. They better get it right or we're going to go into the 1930s style economic depression. Meanwhile, they're quite literally doing nothing, nothing, zero, nada, silch. 
Now you say, George, well, now they are because they've got a balance sheet that's $8 trillion or whatever it is now. You know, and the amount of reserves on the balance sheet for maybe $3 trillion. So it is going down. It is going up. Right. But my point is if the reserves didn't matter at all, zero. Like I said on Twitter the other day, when you get down to $8 billion with $7.5 trillion in M2, and by the way, that's just in the United States. Remember, supposedly the Fed's balance sheet backs up all dollars. So we're talking about, what, $50 trillion <clears throat> backed up by $8 billion? And you're telling me that those reserve, that the banks even use them? No, it might as well have been zero. The only reason that it wasn't zero in this, in this cat, in, excuse me, in this column, and the only reason it wasn't zero in 2007 is because if it was zero, the gig is up. The whole market's going to know the emperor has no clothes. Because if it's zero, how on earth can you tell me the Fed is doing anything when it's always just zero? But effectively, it was. When you get down to those levels relative to the broad money supply. So my point there is you fast forward to today when, again, every single thing that you hear is about the TGA, reverse repo. Holy cow, what are we going to do when Janet Yellen is sucking up all of this liquidity into the TGA? Really? Because here it's obvious the banks weren't using bank reserves. They didn't use them at all. It might as well have been zero. So the question becomes, if they weren't using them at all, if that's if it's that not even up for debate, then why would they use them today? Now, maybe they are. I'm not saying that today, with $3 trillion in reserves, that they're, the banks aren't using those to settle, but they definitely don't have to. If they want to make a... The way I said it on Twitter, I think, is the best way to sum it up. There's nothing that the banks can do with a trillion dollars worth of reserves that they can't do with zero dollars of reserves. Nothing. Well, I take that back. The only thing that they can do with some is they can get cash if they've got a, a customer that let's say they have a hundred thousand dollars in their bank account and they want the hundred thousand dollars worth of cash. Okay. They would have to have reserves because the Fed would have to send them a Brinks truck with the green piece of paper and they would uh, reduce the amount of reserves that they had the Fed. So outside of giving customers cash, there is nothing, zero, nada, zilch that the banks can do with a trillion of reserves versus zero, zero. And this is proof positive. Okay, so now let's go over to the email. So, and again, why this matters. I, I hear people say that quite often. They say, okay, George, well, so what? Who cares? Because when we're trying to predict what the stock market's gonna do, what inflation is gonna do, what the dollar, everyone on the, in the mainstream media, every one of these experts always starts with the Fed's balance sheet. You guys know this, right? So my point is this is a paradigm shift to where we're doing it in reverse order, right? The very last thing that you should be worried about is the Fed's balance sheet. We shouldn't even be talking about it. It's not even, it's a mood issue. But yet everyone puts that as the focal point of their model when they're trying to predict what is going to happen in 2024 or beyond. But let's go over to the mechanics, behind, because a lot of people see this and they just kind of scratch their head and they're like, okay, George, I understand the data. It's, 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 it's right here in front of our face. But the, the problem is I, I don't get the, the back end. The, the, the banks have to be settling on the Fed's balance sheet or else, else how are they doing it? Let's go to bank A right here. We've got assets on the left, liabilities on the right. And uh, then we've got bank B, same thing. 
uh, let's just assume that uh, the balance sheets are blank, but then bank A lends uh, $1,000 into existence. So they do a loan uh, for $1,000. So that would become, so they uh, increase that person's checking account balance by a thousand bucks. So that is now a thousand dollar deposit liability. Uh, and the offsetting asset would be the loan that they just created because that loan, it's a liability for the person that did the borrowing, but it's an asset for the bank that did the lending, right? So what I want to point out first and foremost is when we go down to this next balance sheet, how the liability, if there was only one bank, the liabilities and deposits are, are infinite. They, they just can go on forever because the bank would never, ever, ever transfer that deposit liability. You see, that's why Gaz Bank, as an example in Russia, the only bank, that's why it couldn't go out of business. That's, uh, an, in fact, uh, another reason why the Fed can't go out of business because they, they, they never have to transfer a deposit liability. You see, why could Silicon Valley Bank go bust? Because they had to, they had to transfer a deposit liability. And the assets side of the balance sheet, it wasn't managed properly. But if you never, ever, ever have to transfer that deposit liability, it doesn't matter. It, you can have zero assets and it doesn't matter. So the problem isn't the balance sheet capacity here. It's when the bank or if the bank has to transfer that deposit liability that has been created to another bank. So now let's go back up here and assume that this deposit liability was transferred over to bank B. Okay, well, this is this transaction has not been settled because as you can see, now we've got uh, that $1,000 deposit liability is uh, on bank B's balance sheet, but they don't have an asset. Okay, well, d what would they do if they weren't, if they could not use bank reserves, if there are no bank reserves in the system? And this is what people just, this is the part they really struggle with. It's actually very simple. What they do is bank B extends credit to bank A. So now the balance sheets are simply asset side of bank A, they have the loan that was created. Liability side, that deposit liability, uh, which basically means they owe $1,000 to the customer, has been replaced by a loan from bank B. In other words, instead of owing the customer a thousand bucks, now they just owe bank B a thousand bucks. There's no, there's no difference. <laughs> there's no difference on their balance sheet. It's just, do you owe that bank a thousand bucks or do you owe the customer? To them, it doesn't matter. And then with bank B, that loan that was just created by extending bank A credit is now the asset to match up with that deposit liability. You see? Now let's keep going under this line that I tried to draw here, but my black pen was running out. Uh, let's think about this in terms of if instead of just extending credit, uh, there was an actual bank reserve that was in play here. Okay, so this bank, bank A, starts with bank reserves and then offsetting deposit liability. Okay, cool. And then they do the loan, which creates another asset and another deposit liability. Okay, great. But then what happens is they have to transfer one of those deposit liabilities over to bank B. Same thing that they did at the top. Okay, great. So in this case, the banks decide to settle with bank reserves instead of bank B just issuing credit to bank A. So what ends up happening is one of these deposit liabilities goes over to the balance sheet of bank B and then bank A sends them the bank reserves to settle up. So now let's look at how the balance sheet has changed. Bank A has one loan, one deposit liability. In other words, they owe, they have a loan for let's say a thousand bucks and then they owe a thousand bucks to another entity. Bank A has $1,000 worth of reserves, basically a $1,000 asset. And they also have a $1,000 
deposit liability. So now let me ask you the question. What is the difference at the end of the day when the transactions are settled between settling with bank reserves and just settling with the extension of credit from one bank to the other? Answer, zero, nothing. It's no different. This is why you can have a banking system where broad money is 7.5 trillion right here. And the amount of reserves in the system are effectively zero. That's why right here, because the banks aren't settling on the Fed's balance sheet. They're settling amongst themselves. They're settling on their own balance sheet. This is why I always say that the banks create their own money. They, they create their own assets. They create their own dollars, their own deposit liabilities. It's just balance sheet management. Now it is true that a bank, one single bank cannot create their own currency units or their own quote unquote cash, but the banking system as a whole can create as much cash, quote unquote, as it wants because it just lends it into existence, whether it's lending it to a consumer or it's lending it to another bank. This is how the game is played. And this is why the Fed doesn't matter as long as risk is constant. Now, with an individual basis, if Silicon Valley Bank goes bust or a bank goes bust, they can go to the Fed, they can get a bailout. Sure, the Fed matters, but they could have gotten a bailout from anybody. It wasn't a matter of them having not enough reserves. No, the, the amount of reserves were completely irrelevant. They could have gotten that cash with from JP Morgan. How? Just like this. Just by them extending credit that now becomes dollars on their balance sheet as an asset that they can use to settle with other banks. This is the greatest trick the monetary devil has ever pulled. And they've pulled the wool over the eyes of 99.999999% of not only all market participants, but all experts. And the punchline here, the main takeaway, is that if you understand this, you are going to have a massive, massive edge because you are going to have knowledge that so very few people have that when you look out into the future and when you're assessing the probabilities of X, Y, and Z happening, it's going to like, it's like having a superpower. It's like having a sixth sense armed with this information. You should be able to determine probabilities with much more efficiency and with much more precision. It's never going to be hundred percent precise, but it's bottom line here. Like I said, it's going to give you a huge huge edge when you're setting up your portfolio, when you're trying to implement or put your portfolio together to maximize on your returns uh, or your financial objectives, whether those objectives are to survive the shitstorm that we have coming our way, if you want to look at the, the yield curve, or thrive in markets going into 2024 or into 2025, when if the yield curve plays out, stuff gets cheap. What do you buy? Well, you got to start with the probabilities and you understand those probabilities better once you understand how the monetary system works and once you understand that the banks don't revolve around the Fed. The Fed revolves around the banks to the point where the Fed, and this, just again, go through this video, pull up the H3 data yourself. Don't take my word on it. You can see the Fed's balance sheet, it's not even part of the monetary system, definitively, prior to 2008. So why would it be now? All right, guys, enjoy the rest of your afternoon. As always, make sure that you're standing up for freedom, liberty, free market, capitalism. If you like these topics, you're going to love Rebel Capitalist Live. I've got people like my good buddy, Mark Moss, 
is going to be there. Robert Barnes talking about freedom, liberty. Chris McIntosh, commodities expert. We got Mike Green, Jeff Snyder talking about all of this stuff. And if you guys really want to have an edge, you got to get your tickets to that. Get your tickets at rebelcapitalistlive.com. All right, guys, we'll see you in the next video.